Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. the intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Monday, the 12th day of December 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, I'll be talking to Laura Miller. She's the book critic for Salon.com and a frequent contributor to the New York Times Book Review. We'll be discussing year-end top 10 lists, how they relate to the work of a literary critic and how they don't. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, after 80 years of romping together with his friends Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, Christopher Robin has been kicked out of the 100-acre wood by the Walt Disney Company. Disney, which only recently won control of the rights to the Pooh franchise from creator A.A. Milne's granddaughter in a hotly contested court case with her, announced it's going to celebrate the 80-year anniversary of the books by replacing the character of Christopher Robin with a little girl in its upcoming cartoon versions of the books. Disney spokeswoman Nancy Cantor explained that the Disney Corporation decided, quote, these timeless characters really needed a breath of fresh air, end quote. Newspapers in Great Britain spent the weekend striving to make Cantor understand you can't be timeless and need updating at the same time. They reported a furor amongst Pooh fans and pointed out that the beloved series of books started out as bedtime stories written specifically for Milne's son, Christopher Robin Milne. National Book Award winner and critic Roger Shattuck has died of prostate cancer. Shattuck won the National Book Award for his biography of Marcel Proust, entitled simply Marcel Proust, in 1975. But Shattuck was equally esteemed for his work as a literary critic and teacher. As a professor at Boston University and an essayist in such places as the New York Review of Books, he became a leading critic of postmodern schools of criticism in the academy, such as deconstructionism, and he lamented the neglect of a canon of classic works. As he once said in a speech to the Association of Literary Scholars and Critics, quote, everything has been said, but nobody listens. Therefore, it has to be said all over again, only better. In order to say it better, we have to know how it was said before. Roger Shattuck was 82. One of Great Britain's leading literary prizes has been dumped by its sponsor, The Whitbread Company has announced it will no longer support the annual Whitbread Book Awards. A spokeswoman for the company, at one time a major brewer that has since widely diversified, announced, quote, We no longer sell products or services that carry the name Whitbread, so it is no longer appropriate to fund an award to promote the Whitbread brand. Close quote. The Whitbread typically gives out awards in five categories every year for novel, first novel, biography, poetry, and children's books, with each winner getting 5,000 pounds. One is chosen as the best overall book and awarded an additional 25,000 pounds. That prize most recently went to Andrea Levy for her novel Small Island. The Times of London says the announcement 
quote, is a blow to the literary world as the Whitbread is rivaled only by the Booker in terms of prestige and influence, close quote. No word yet on whether a replacement sponsor will be found or whether next month's announcement of the 2005 awards will be the last. The city of Belfast, Northern Ireland, celebrated the release of the movie based on the Chronicles of Narnia this weekend by declaring the first ever festival dedicated to its native son, C.S. Lewis, the author of the series. The Agence France Presse reports festivities include a tour of locations that inspired the locations of the books, such as the cliffside Dunluce Castle, as well as tours of the house where Clive Staples Lewis was born into a Protestant family. After meeting J.A.R.R.R.R. Tolkien, <laughs> he converted to Catholicism, leading one of his biographers involved with the Belfast celebration to say that Lewis was, quote, a huge bridge between the Catholic community and the Protestant community in a divided Northern Ireland. And finally in the news, yet another study of reader reviews on Amazon.com has analyzed another reason to be distrustful of those reviews. A Cornell University study of the way that users abuse a technical system finds widespread use of plagiarized material being passed off as original reviews. A story appearing on LinuxElectrons.com reports that Cornell researchers Shay David and Trevor Pinch have released a report called Six Degrees of Reputation, the Use and Abuse of Online Recommendation Systems that focuses primarily on Amazon.com and finds, quote, hundreds, possibly thousands of cases of copying amongst Amazon.com's book and CD reviews, close quote. The two researchers say they were prompted to conduct the study by the fact that, quote, online review systems have increasingly influenced cultural commerce in an area where traditional experts and critics once held sway as objective guardians of quality and artistic merit. The result, however, is not a democratic exchange or a critical dialogue, but the possible creation of a cultural Lake Wobegon where all books are above average. Close quote. Professor Pinch says he first came up with the idea when he noticed that several user reviews that had been lifted from a book he himself wrote, and he said he was dismayed to learn that such, quote, blatant copying by possibly non-existent readers was allowed by Amazon. And that's the news, or is it, for Monday, the 12th day of December 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's December 12th, and on this day in literary history in 1821, Melville House author Gustave Flaubert was born in Rouen, France. The great French writer is perhaps best known for his masterpiece, the novel Madame Bovary. Madame Bovary took Flaubert six years to write. He had been unhappy with his earlier attempt at a novel, his The Temptation of St. Anthony, and was ruthlessly painstaking in his composition methods, often taking an entire week to write one page. Always in search of the mot juste, the exact word, Flaubert's was a heroic struggle against the cliché. He refused to yield to the inexact or to the generalized. He would never settle for a phrase which approximated his meaning. 
Madame Bovary was serialized in the Revue de Paris in 1856 and then published as a book in 1857. The story of Emma Bovary, the frustrated wife of a country doctor who eventually succumbs to the tedium of her daily life by following her own desires into adultery, outraged the sensibilities of Flaubert's contemporaries. The realistic depiction of adultery was condemned as offensive to morality and to religion, and the government brought suit against both the publisher and the author on the charges of immorality. Both were acquitted, but Madame Bovary's fame was mostly from scandal, though eventually its genius came to be known and appreciated, and in the 1860s, Flaubert enjoyed great success as a writer and intellectual at the court of Napoleon III. Among his many literary friends were Emile Zola, George Sand, and Ivan Turgenev, with whom he shared similar aesthetic ideals and a dedication to realism. Flaubert corresponded extensively. His fascinating letters with George Sand, which hold great literary insight into how he and Sand worked, were published in 1884 with an introduction by Guy de Maupassant. But mostly Flaubert preferred his solitary life, living in Croise, near Rouen, and toiling over his writing. Quote, I am a bear, he once wrote, and want to remain a bear in my den. Toward the end of his life, he was hard at work on a scathing satire on the futility of human knowledge and the ubiquity of human mediocrity, Bouvard and Pécuchet, which he left unfinished. In it, Flaubert could be said to have raised misanthropy to an art form. Though, as early as 1848, at the ripe old age of 27, he had observed, quote, to be stupid and selfish and to have good health are the three requirements for happiness. Though if stupidity is lacking, the others are useless. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's This Day in Literary History. I know my chicken. You got to know you are chicken. I'm on the line with Laura Miller, the book critic for Salon and a frequent critic at the New York Times Book Review. Laura, welcome to Moby Lives Radio. Thanks. It's great to be with you. I wanted to ask you about the fact that it's it's that time of year. There are all the 10 best lists around, and um, I know you're, you're getting one together for Salon. How, how do you feel about these lists? Well, I think that... Um the 10 best list is something that people like to kvetch about. I mean, I know that it's a particularly fraught project for film critics, but I think it's particularly important um, in the book world because it's, it's often the most read critical work that we do every year. Um, not only is Salon's um, 10 best books list um, one the most read book story that we do every year, but it is among the top four or five stories usually for any given year of all of the stories that we do. So it's incredibly popular with readers, and I often hear from readers that they go out and buy the books on the list, you know, that they eagerly await them, and if it's late, they complain that you haven't given them the list yet, and, and so on. Now, do you like to read these lists yourself? Do you oh, yeah. I'm always really interested in them. They, mm-hmm. they tend to be pretty diverse, and, and 
I'm also on the National Book Critics Circle Board, which um, picks a um, winner in, I think it's five, it might be six now different categories, and um, and a short list in each category before that. And, um, and so, you know, it's always really interesting to have intensive discussions with people about which books they think are the best, because even people who have pretty similar tastes, I mean, there are several critics who I often chime with, have really different responses to certain books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing about the, the 10 best list is now, now, you're an unusual critic in that you get to write um, uh, at, at a depth that, that isn't typical that much anymore. You know, you get to really write at length for the Times or for Salon about books, whereas um, lots of newspapers are dropping their book critic sections, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, but here you are, um, when you do a, a 10 best list, you have to almost synopsize things, and it's a, it's, it strikes me as a, as a different kind of process. Do you, do, does it is. It's com- it's completely different. I mean, f- often there are books that I've already written about in depth because, of course, all through the year you're sort of working on your um, your your ten best list. But that's more the case with the fiction than the nonfiction mm-hmm. because with nonfiction we try to give um, more attention to certain types of books that don't um, review that well in in salon, mm-hmm. um, which would be more like narrative nonfiction, as opposed to maybe more polemical nonfiction. What do you mean they don't review that well? Well, uh, I mean you take a book like, um, well, a classic example of a very successful narrative nonfiction is Sea Biscuit. Okay. And that's a book is, you know beautifully written and beautifully researched and really enjoyable to read, but it doesn't make for a review that a lot of people want to read. Mm -hmm. People want to read the book, but they don't want to read a review of it. But when you have a book that's more contentious, um, or that's an argument about ideas or what's going on in the world, people have different opinions about it, and so they're more interested in reading about it. So when you've got something that's more or less just a straightforward narrative, um, and reviewing it would mean maybe synopsizing it as, as opposed to discussing the ideas, you're finding um, there's less interest in reviewing it. There's less interest in reading the review. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interest in reading the books, mm-hmm. but for some reason, things like memoirs, unless a person has a really unusual life story or um, you know, s- some kinds of historical um, stuff, mm-hmm. it just doesn't unless it engages with a sort of controversial issue, mm-hmm. tends not to... The readers just don't click on those stories mm-hmm. because we know exactly how many people click on every single story. Right. Right. That's how you know that the 10 best list is so highly read. Exactly. So um, what does that mean when you're putting together the list at the end of the year, though? Do you, do you include the Seabiscuit or do you, do you include the books of ideas more heavily? Well, that's the time that we really try to give attention to a more a, a nonfiction that has a more narrative approach. Mm-hmm. It isn't always that way. I think last year we um, had David Chipler's book, um, uh, The Working Poor, which has a, has a, I mean, has a lot of narratives in it, but it's not a sort of single narrative mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just was so both so important and so readable. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, every ten best list has a sort of different slant, especially when you get to the nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people try to pick just really important books and 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 definitive books, and and we definitely have done that. But I. 
I just feel as a general rule, and this has been most of the people I've worked on 10 best lists for Salon, um, uh, people who've worked with me on them, um, you know, we just feel like we don't want anything on the list that people aren't going to get pleasure from reading. Right. Um, you know, it's not a spinachy list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no broccoli. Yeah. Now, how does, not just on, the, on a top ten list, but on, on the books you like to review in general, how does popularity enter into it? If a book is uh, particularly hot at the moment, um, selling a lot, does that make it attractive to you? Not necessarily. It's more the kinds of people who like it. Um, people whose judgment I know in the past is discriminating and, and people whose taste I, I trust. If a lot of people whose taste I trust really like a book, then um, you know I, I'm, I'm definitely going to try to have a look at it. Um, but if it's just on the bestseller list, um, particularly if it's fiction, you know, I mean, what's on the bestseller list is like Patricia Cornwell, which is a fine, amusing um, crime novel, but it's not going to be on the... I mean, people don't really need to see the bestseller list replicated on the 10 best list. I mean, part of the point of the 10 best list is to point to books that aren't necessarily going to be on the bestseller list, although sometimes they are. So there's kind of a editorial advocacy involved. There is, but I mean, I just think that people expect different things from different genres of mm. books. Like, I'm sure a lot of people who are reading the new Patricia Cornwell probably don't think, oh, this is the best novel of the year, mm. but it's a, it's a nice entertainment, and, um, you know, like a lot of people will go see Eon Flux, but, you know, they don't think it should win the Oscar. Right. And it, so it's, it's, it's kind of, it's more like that. It's mm. less that... Um, that uh, we're advocating for books that, you know, we think, you know, need a boost, then that we just have slightly different standards because we're not, we want it to be an entertaining and enjoyable book, but we also want to feel like it has other things to offer and that it may, it, that it, it makes you feel like you're engaging with, you know, things that are really important in life and, and that it's doing something interesting. It's very subjective, but, you know, it, it's not just a popularity contest mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um for the list that you're putting together for salon uh who's involved uh, with the selection is it is it just you or, or well we gather together on? tips from all of the people on staff because most of the people on staff write about a book at some point mm-hmm. during the year and are looking at books all through the year um and that's particularly helpful with nonfiction because um you know, they may not be writing about them, but we can send out an email to the whole editorial staff and say, you know, what book could you not put down this year? And people will send recommendations. And then there's a few other critics that I ask. Um, I do look at the the list that the National Book Critics Circle is kicking around, and I ask lots and lots of people I know who read a lot of books. Um, so that's the initial process of coming up with a, a long list of books that we'd like to look at and then the books editor a uh, book section editor Hillary Fry and I have c- kind of gone over that list and parceled out who should look at what mm-hmm. so it's a really it's a it's a year-long process it sounds like well it is sort of because you're thinking about it 
all year long and you're setting books aside that you may not have had a chance to cover in any other way, but you think that they could be good for, for year-end. But it gets really intensive in the month of November and early December. Right, right. Now, have you ever rethought a book? Is there, is, is it, has it ever occurred that you uh, liked uh, or, or, or disliked a book strongly during the course of the year while, and, and, and that you reviewed it and, and, and had a strong reaction? And then when it came into the year, you rethought it and had a different opinion? I think it's usually more that you are kind, that I've kind of been moderately pleased by a book. And then in retrospect, especially when there are not that many other really great books coming out, I mean, this wasn't a really strong year for fiction, in, in my opinion, especially American fiction. And so, um, you know, like I thought, I liked Saturday, the Ian McEwan book. Um, it It wouldn't be on my long short list ordinarily, but I didn't think there were that many strong um, you know, I just didn't read a lot of stuff that I loved this year, whereas there are some years where especially there's just I just loved so many books, especially books from new writers and you know and it just felt like a, a bonanza and then you know then there are others that feel relatively dry. but I think, different people feel different ways. I mean, other people were completely blown away by Saturday. So, right. um, you know, I, I just, it's more like, you know, kind of middling reaction starts to look better in retrospect. If I really have an aversion to something, I mean, occasionally I'll start reading something and there'll be something about the beginning of it that completely grates on my nerves and then I'll bail on it and then someone will convince me that I need to go back to and go back, read yeah. more. Uh-huh. But it's rare that I read a whole book and don't think much of it and then later change my mind. Well, I guess I'm just wondering on some some insight into the reviewing process because I I, I know in my, in my case there have always been books that I've, I've read and maybe liked moderately and a year later find that I'm still thinking about parts of that book and, and slowly rejudging it. And I, I wonder if I had reviewed it, if I would have shut the door on it in a way, you know, by having written about it, do you close the door on, on that book? Um, so I was just wondering if, if that kind of assessment ever happens to you when you get to these year-end lists or maybe when you read somebody else's year-end list, does it, does it uh, spark a, a reconsideration of any kind? I think, you know, it, it might... It's hard to say... I, I mean, I feel like when I really dislike a book, it's such a personal, visceral response <laughs> that that's unlikely to change to something very different from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I'm that you know sometimes someone can persuade me to like a book a bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, sometimes in the discussions of the National Book Critics Circle, a, you know, passionate advocate for a book mm-hmm. will make you see strengths or qualities that it has mm-hmm. that you haven't seen. But one thing I would say is that it tends to happen more often with a book that you read and you don't review. Because mm-hmm. when I review a book, I read it once um, with you know an underlining implement in hand, and then I read it again and, um, and take notes. And so I know that book pretty well. And um, and I think you're more likely to sort of have a slightly off, you know, a slightly 
off true response, Mm -hmm. given that all responses are subjective, when it's something that you haven't given that much attention to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the kind of attention that, uh, for me personally, that I pay to a book when I review it is so close that I feel like I, I have a pretty good sense of what the guts of it are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have, for example, here's an example of something where I felt middling about a book, uh, to use Ian McEwan as an example again, and then um, different about it after talking to a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, with, um, oh, God, I can't remember. The, the one before um, Saturday, uh, uh. Uh, the, the one that's, that starred the little girl, Brienne. Yeah, yeah. Uh, atonement? <laughs> atonement, yes, atonement. I don't know why that went out of my head. Um, the, the, you know, I was not... I had issues with that book. It had mostly to do with the end. Right. But um, I have a friend who's a, a novelist, and he really, really admires that book. And he started to explain to me that the first part of the book is deliberately written in kind it's slightly bad and the reason why is because it's written by this by by the character of right. Bryony when she's an adult and the particular type of sort of not good writing that she does is meant to sort of construct a character for her that you can you know and, and these are the kinds of very sophisticated evaluation that I, d- I just didn't really make when I read it, you know. I mean, I didn't go back and read it carefully again f- from the perspective of someone who knew now that the first part of the book was written by a character who appeared in the last part of the book mm-hmm. and that um, that I was supposed, from the things that didn't work about it, I was supposed to gather, gain an understanding of that character. Mm-hmm. I just, I, that miss, I missed that entirely. Mm-hmm. And um, Had you reviewed it? by the way? Um, yeah, I have to admit, that one is one that I kind of knocked off a review for. I didn't really like the book. I didn't feel strongly about the book, but um, my boss really wanted a piece on it, and so I wrote an admiring review I thought the, because I really liked the middle section of the book mm-hmm. a great deal. But I feel like that was one, that is a case where I didn't have an entire understanding of it, mm-hmm. and that changed after I reviewed it. But mm. that hasn't happened to me very often. And that's an extremely subtle thing about that book that um, I would guess very few people who have read it really understand. And it took another novelist to explain that to me. Well, McEwen is a very kind of devious writer, and I don't mean that as a a, a criticism other than as an observation. It's it's a book that that works on you very long term. Uh, Most of his books do. Um, there's a there's a gut reaction and a longer term reaction. That's, that's the kind of reaction I was quizzing you about. You know, does does it happen too often? It doesn't. Um, it doesn't happen very often because I usually feel like I can get that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that that really sticks out in my mind as mm-hmm. a as a as a case where I missed something. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned before about having um, a, a visceral response to uh, writing or having a, a, a negative visceral response and it, as you were speaking about does does having that kind of reaction to a book help or, or, or hurt when you're a critic well it really depends on what sort of piece you um, plan to write or are expected to write mm-hmm. or what venue you're working for mm-hmm. um, at Salon 
we have just we have found that you know our readers are interested in reviews of say something like a novel. I mean, I'm just going to talk about fiction at first. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our readers are interested in that, but not if our feelings about the book are tepid, mm-hmm. and um, and not if it's an obscure book that we hate. Mm-hmm. You know, they they I think they mostly feel like. Uh, you know, if, if you don't really like it, why are you even telling me about it? Mm-hmm. You know, because it wasn't on my radar screen anyway. It's not right. like they're going to the movies on Friday and there's five new releases and they they want to pick one and they might go to a terrible one. Mm-hmm. They'd never have heard of this book otherwise, and so they don't need you to really tell them that they don't need to know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a high-profile book, you know, and you really respond to it negatively, I think readers can get something from that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think often really popular or well-known books, um, you know, that have like a large population of people who have tried it and hated it, mm-hmm. those people often really, really appreciate somebody kind of putting into words what <laughs> doesn't work about something. You know, people yeah. like that. Yeah. But I think that there is a kind of shooting a fish in the barrel aspect mm-hmm. to writing like a cutting review or a, just a, you know, an angry or disgusted review of a book that's relatively obscure. I mm-hmm. mean, there's just mm-hmm. no point in 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 stomping on that because it it's not... Um, a threat to anybody. Who was it? Uh, Kurt Vonnegut that said getting upset about a a work of fiction is like declaring war on an ice cream sundae. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a little disingenuous, but you know. <laughs> well, he's a novelist. Yeah. Um, uh, let me let me get off from talking about your processes of reviewing for a, a minute to ask you about something that's more artificial to the process, which is. Um, any kind of political motives when putting together a list, and I don't mean are you trying to plant, uh, you know, Democratic books or Republican books. I mean greater issues. For example, the Times just did their hundred uh, notable books of the year, and there were I think four books from uh, non-conglomerate publishers. Um, do you think things like that should concern people, particularly editors, when they're putting a list together? Should there be um, uh, those kind of, um, I'm going to call them artificial political concerns about about a list. Should there be a certain number of, of women? Should there be a certain number of independents? Things like that. Is that an issue? I think that if you look at a list and you think, um, um, I, uh, you know, it's all men, mm-hmm. or it's all white people, or something like that, mm-hmm. and you, and that, um, I mean, I've definitely felt like, hmm, uh, I might try to diversify the authors somewhat. Mm-hmm. It's always nice to have, I mean, we've definitely had small press books on our list, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't put one there if I didn't think it was good. Mm-hmm. And um, very often I, you know, I don't find, uh, you know, I look at a lot of small press books and I don't find that many that are good. But I mean, that's the same thing with the big press books. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm not going to, put something on there that I don't I mean my first responsibility is to the readers and they don't really care mm-hmm. who published the book mm-hmm. so um, they don't even know in most cases and so I'm not going to put something on there because I think that 
they're going, it's going to make a difference. It's not going to make a difference to them. And that's where my first responsibility lies. They are going to probably notice if all of the books are by women or all the books are, you know, are by men or something like that. But, um, but, uh, um, you know, they may value a diversity of, 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 of author. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, you know, you, you, you feel good about it. You, you, you make an effort to look for some amount of diversity, but ultimately, whether you think this is going to deliver to the reader, you know, a really gratifying reading experience is the tantamount thing. Right. Because sure. what happens is, if you are letting all of these other concerns um, determine what you recommend to your readers, and you're recommending stuff that really just isn't that good. Mm -hmm they just don't listen to you at all. So there's kind of no point. It becomes a self-defeating. Self yeah, and it just looks like a, a PC arrangement. Well, they may not even notice that, uh -huh. you know. But, I mean, I mean, one of the kind of really dreadful things about the excesses of the PC movement is now anytime people are making an effort to make something be more representative or be more fair, it becomes so easy to write off mm -hmm. as merely PC, which becomes a way of saying something's totally illegitimate. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it's a balance mm -hmm. because there's been excesses now. People who don't really want to have to think about, you know, a, you know, that maybe some great books are written by women or mm -hmm. non-white people. Um, uh, you know, I mean, maybe you know, people who who don't want to hear that or have to think about that now can just dismiss observations about those kind of imbalances as being PC. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, you don't, it's valid because a variety of authorial voices and points of view is enriching to the reader. And so, um, so you know, that you have to kind of strike a balance, but you never want to be putting something on the list mostly for those other concerns. Right. right. That, I mean, that's just bad faith and people can really smell that and they may not even notice that that's happening but it's just that they read the list and they go or they buy the books and they're disappointed right, right i mean you have to be true to your own responses so that you can be providing the service for the reader that is part of what you do okay and with a list like this this is really a service type list uh-huh well let me let me close by asking you a final question about the list. It's um, the list. When did when does Salon post this list? I think this one comes out on the nineteenth. Okay, so on the morning of the of the nineteenth or the twentieth, do you hear from people on the list or people that 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 want you to know they should have been on the list? Does that? <laughs> well, you know that's an interesting question. Once a writer, once one year. Um, I disagreed with the person I compiled the list with about a book, but because I knew the author of the book, I didn't press against this uh, my collaborator, and you know, I, who just felt that it didn't quite meet the mark. And then I did hear from this writer, but it was in a very jesting sort of way, uh -huh. and um, and the writer was very good sport about it. Um, People don't, you know, there's so many books people that come out every year that people don't, they're more likely to be disappointed that you didn't review it rather than that you didn't put it on the 10 best list. Mm -hmm. um, and I think most people actually do have the humility to say, to, to not 
call someone up and say, how come you didn't put my book on the five best novels of the year? Don't they have their publisher do it? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Publishers, I mean, publishers are, if anything, even more, prof- uh, actually, publishers are definitely far more professional than authors are. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, Laura Miller, critic for Salon, compiler of their 10 best list this year and regular contributor to the New York Times. Thanks for coming on Mobiliz Radio. You're welcome. It's been fun. And that's our show for Monday, the 12th day of December, 2005. Thanks to Laura Miller of Salon.com and the New York Times for coming on the show. Thanks to our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, to Kelly Burdick and Peggy Kramer here at Melville House, and of course to our publisher, Valerie Marians. Come on back tomorrow. We're going to be talking to Colin Robinson about his departure from the new press and the situation of leftist independent presses in general. Until then, don't forget, that whale is out there, man.